You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Marek Inhat-Ponhaus. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. Hey Mark, what have you got for us today? G'day Leo. Today I want to talk about what is an adjunct. And in order to do that, I probably have to set the scene a little bit about the Australian university system and its ranks. So the university system in Australia is very much influenced by the system that is common in the United Kingdom. In general, the academic system in Australia has five main ranks. Associate lecturer, lecturer, senior lecturer, associate professor, and professor. And these titles are usually reserved for researchers that are employed by the university in either a part-time or full-time capacity. However, there is another class of ranks which are honorary in nature and are called sometimes adjunct or conjoint or honorary or visiting. And these are used to indicate a special relationship that exists between, for example, the adjunct professor and the university. And I should also point out that these are non-paid positions. And these are the key aspects of adjuncts. So you're not receiving a salary when you are an adjunct professor. Are you an employee of the university? Strictly speaking... No, so you're not bound by what will be called the enterprise bargaining agreement. However, you do need to abide by the rules and regulations of the university. So when you become an honorary or an adjunct professor, you sign up to adhere by the policies and procedures of the university. Interesting. So yeah, you are, I guess, volunteering yourself into some more restrictive conditions on how you operate. What are the benefits for an adjunct professor? Why would you choose to maintain this relationship? So for example, in a previous episode, we talked about sabbatical leave. So if I would go on sabbatical leave to another university, I would generally be appointed in an honorary or a visiting position that would instantly allow me to become covered by the insurance of the university and I I would be able to get access and exist within that university. So I could get a library card, I can be given an office, I can be given lab space. And one of the benefits of a sabbatical leave is that somebody else is paying my salary. So it could be very beneficial for me if I want to develop a new research capacity or gain access to new skills or new laboratories. So it's, it's all of the perks of the university except the salary? Except the salary. You still have to adhere to everything else that goes on within the university. And you mentioned a few different, I guess, terms for this, the adjunct, the honorary. I know there's also emeritus. Um, are these given to different people under different circumstances or are they essentially synonymous with one another? Depends on your circumstances. So if I would go on a three-month visit to a university, I will obviously be called visiting professor. If I have a much longer relationship with the university, I may be called an adjunct. If I want to indicate that 
you know, you mentioned emeritus. That's actually emeritus is usually reserved to people that were full-time employees of the university, and when they retire, they can be given the title of emeritus. Honorary can also be given to generally. It's it's used a lot of time for clinicians. So let's say you're a surgeon working in a hospital, but you also teach at a university. You can become an honorary clinical professor at that university. Does this tie in at all with honorary degrees? Sometimes you'll see someone given an honorary doctorate for services to the community. It's a similar system. It it all creates links between people in the community and at university. And the university can leverage off the standing of those people. So in particular, when you give someone an honorary degree, then you create an association. So whatever light is shining off the person that you give this to, you can use that light to reflect that from your own organization. And the same goes with honorary and visiting professors. Uh, Well, shall we move on to the business topic? For sure, what you've got for us, Leo. So I want to talk quickly about incentive programs. Now, this is something that I'm sure the audience is at least somewhat familiar with. So businesses, small and large, can create incentive programs to help encourage their employees to work hard or achieve particular outcomes. Incentives are commonly paid as a cash bonus. However, they can take many other forms, including shares, extra leave, or even just public recognition, like a employee of the month program. A very common example of incentives is the sales commission, such as a real estate agent selling a house and taking a 3% commission. The more houses the estate agent sells and the higher their prices, the more the real estate agent takes home as a salary. Incentives are often applied to frontline salespeople like this because there's a direct connection between their efforts and the sale itself, which makes it easy for you to value the time they're putting in and reward them for it. It's much harder for people like engineers or admin staff whose contributions to the business are a little bit harder to actually put a dollar figure on. Incentives are, however, common for founders, CEOs, and other top-level executives who can be judged on the performance of the business as a whole. Metrics like its customer base, revenue growth, workplace safety, or even just its share price can all be used to judge whether the CEOs are doing a good job. For these people, incentives are often paid not as cash, but as shares or share options that essentially give the management team greater ownership of the business itself and even further incentive to ensure the business continues to succeed. Despite how widespread they are, there is still debate about how effective incentives are at managing a workforce. They certainly can help shape behaviour, but sometimes they also induce people to act in unscrupulous ways to maximise their incentives. There is also a lot of evidence that cash bonuses lose their efficacy once people are already paid well enough to cover their basic needs around their home. In many cases, a business might be better off implementing non-cash rewards to get more bang for their buck in their incentive program. Anyway, that's all for me. Let's jump into some questions. Thank you, Leo. So you mentioned incentives. Is there an opposite of that? Can there be a disincentive? Yeah, I mean, almost all workplaces will have policies around if you break the rules, there will be a penalty for that, up to and including being fired or held liable for negligence, and they are disincentives from doing the wrong thing as well. It's rare that a base salary would be docked for doing things wrong in the workplace. You're more likely to, I guess, lose your job than you are to lose a portion of your pay for doing the wrong thing. You do hear of cases in restaurants, for instance, of people being penalised for breakages, but I think in most cases those are borderline illegal and it's, it's rare to have a disincentive scheme. So you mentioned that admin staff, their nature of their position is generally not 
conducive to this incentive. So would they generally be paid better, like in terms of a base salary then? They should be. At least in theory, you would say that having incentive schemes in place allows for a lower base salary to be acceptable by an employee. So for instance, a real estate agent who sells no houses probably would have a pretty bad take-home pay um, because they are expected to receive a fair portion of their pay as commission and therefore their base salary would be a lot lower. So salespeople, I'd say it definitely applies to, they would have a lower base salary because they're expected to earn commission. I think admin staff are probably a tough example because generally they are deemed to be a lower skill profession, rightly or wrongly, and have a lower base pay than other comparable people in the business. But yes, in general, if you are in a position that earns a commission or some kind of sales incentive, you should have a lower salary to benefit or to account for that. And to give another extreme example, sometimes CEOs will be on a, on a $1 salary, a completely nominal salary figure as their base salary. And almost all of their pay is actually either through incentives or through a share option plan that is not an incentive, it's not tied to any metric, but they're just receiving most of their actual remuneration as shares rather than cash. So it's an interesting example that you mentioned about the $1 CEOs. I have noticed when I look at some of these statistics that it's generally people that are already multi-billionaires that put themselves on $1 salaries. It's tax effective is probably the main reason for that. Once you're already earning a lot of money, you are in a high tax bracket. And at that point, you're much better off earning new dollars as capital gains than you are to earn it as income. So that actually brings me to the next question. How does tax work for incentives and commissions? In In 15 seconds. In 15 (laughs) seconds, Leo. Might be a bit hard, but... Yeah, look, uh, for share options, um, it's it's treated as a capital gain. Uh, for, For salary bonuses, it's treated as income. Um, so a, a bonus paid as cash is income and a bonus paid in shares. It depends on when you sell those shares, it will be treated as a capital gain. And that's probably all we've got time for today. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week. Yep, see you next week. Mm-hmm.